Greetings, steampunk survivalists, and welcome back to Steampunk Dollhouse Supplemental. Today we will be covering the final chapter of Steampunk's Guide to the Apocalypse, Chapter 5, wherein we discuss the best ways to handle the cooties that inevitably come with an apocalypse. I hope you've enjoyed all these tips, and I've really enjoyed giving them to you. And I hope you'll like the new supplementals that are to come. Um, I'm going to be trying something a little different, so please be kind. Um, but before that, real quick, I just wanted to um, mention again that I will be at Steampunk November on November the 11th, um, which is going to be here in North Texas. And then I will also be going to the Wild West Victorian Fest in Carville, Texas in December. Um, I've never been to either events, so I can't give any reviews as to the nature of the events. But I am open to new things, so I'll put links in the show notes. And I hope to see some of you out there at one or both. Um, I also wanted to remind you about the smaller event that's coming up on November 5th in Manor, Texas. It's called the Steampunk Shindig, and it's going to run from noon to 8, uh, noon to 8 p.m. It's being hosted by the Gang of the Texas Steampunk Connection, and they're going to have live music, games, and a raffle, and a costume contest, among other things. Um, there will also be a host of vendors to choose from. That one I will not be attending, but I do recommend it, so go and have fun. And you will find links for the events in the show notes. And that's everything I've got for an introduction. So we are going to hear a quick word from Audible. And then we will get into today's final Steampunk Survival Guide reading. This week's Steampunk Dollhouse Supplemental is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. This week, I'm recommending The X-Files, Stolen Lives, by Joe Harris and Chris Carter. The division has been reopened, but nothing is as it seems in this electrifying follow-up to The X-Files Cold Cases, starring David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson. Based upon the graphic novels by Joe Harris, with creative direction from series creator Chris Carter, Stolen Lives further explores the sonic landscape of Mulder and Scully's paranormal investigations while continuing the epic storyline begun in Cold Cases. Starring David Duchovny, Gillian Anderson, and a full cast. Visit www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod to download The X-Files, Stolen Lives, or any one of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. Chapter 5. A Brief Introduction to Contagion Long now have we adapted our bodies to a life devoid of contamination, and it is quite possible that we have grown soft therefrom. Dependent upon antibiotics instead of antibodies, sanitation and health will be of no small importance in the decades to come, if we are to survive. This chapter is remarkably incomplete, and proper care ought to be taken by any concerned steampunk, you among them, to seek out further instruction. Wellness A healthy body is far better medicine than any hospital may provide, and it is remarkable from what maladies you may spring gaily back to your feet if you take care of yourself well. Composting toilets. The modern sewage system, boon it has been, is still an idea most infantile when brought under the rigorous gaze of the intelligent scientist. In short, it is unsustainable to flush nutrients out into the ocean waters, even if doing so allows us to flush most diseases as well. One solution to this problem is to compost our waste. With a comparatively sterile urine, this can be accomplished simply by urinating onto soil. By varying your location and by not expelling onto edible plants, most complications are avoided. 
but solid human wastes carry many dangerous pathogens, and it is unwise to use such matter as direct fertilizer. The solution is found in composting, and many physical constructions may be utilized. The concept is not as complex as it may seem. As it's most basic, you simply need to collect your solid waste to compost. Note that it is important to not urinate into the compost toilet, and it is advisable to cover your waste with sawdust or ash to keep odors and illness at bay. Further, it is advisable to allow humanure, as it has been dubbed, to sit for at least the length of a full year, allowing ample time for every pathogen to die. Any other non-traditionally compostable food waste, such as flesh or dairy, may also be composted in the humanure pile. In many countries, it is currently illegal to compost using humanure. Fortunate, then, that all legal considerations will soon find themselves invalid. Toothpaste. Particularly considering the likely high-carb diet of a scavenger in the post-apocalyptic world, proper dental care will be quite important. Firstly, it is suggested that toothpaste and fluoride rinses be hoarded, but to supplement the use of such non-renewable resources, a simple toothpaste may be made from three parts baking soda and two parts water. Mint or cinnamon may be added for taste. When toothaches or active cavities are present, use the fluoride toothpaste, but otherwise, you may depend on your homemade variety. Drugs. Those unfortunate souls reliant upon medications would do well to stockpile in advance, and if possible, to learn the chemistry necessary for more complex distillations. Antibiotics will need to be gathered as well, although their relatively short shelf life will necessitate our adaptation to more old-fashioned herbal methods. A rather great variety of health concerns may be solved through the application of herbal remedies. Further research will yield more complete results, but be aware that white willow bark can be infused into tea to relieve aches, pains, and fevers, garlic is a powerful antibiotic, antifungal, and antiviral, Ginger is useful when your stomach has been upset, and echinacea helps boost your immune system. Illness. There are thousands of contagions in the world, and we make no claims to cover them all herein. Instead, we focus on four of the more socially transmittable and socially awkward diseases. Staph. Staphylococcus, better known as staph, is an insidious bacteria that lives upon your skin amiably enough until that skin is ruptured and the bacteria enters your bloodstream. Once inside, it may roam about your body, bursting forth in the form of boils and sores. Most often, your body will fight it off with success, but the unfortunate will discover the bacteria infecting their internal organs, and death may certainly result. Staph is transferable by touch, and it is therefore quite communicable. It is advised to use aggressive herbal treatments if antibiotics are unavailable. Scabies. These are a bastardly little mite referred to by scientists as Sarcoptes scabii. Given the opportunity, it will live and breed on and under the surface of your skin. Not only is it a highly communicable infestation, but scabies also takes up to six weeks to be noticed, and the unfortunate host is contagious this entire span. Untreated, bumpy red itching will spread over your body, and it is quite likely that your furious scratching will leave you quite prone to other infections. It is best treated by the application of hazardous chemicals, such as permethrin, and it is advised to acquire these controlled substances immediately after the apocalypse. Some people have also reported successful treatment utilizing the application of tea tree oil to less developed infestations. Once treated, it is important to avoid reinfection by keeping all surfaces and clothes in an immaculate state for two weeks. Lice. 
Another common infestation found among people living communally is lice. The louse lives among the hair of the host, feasting on the host, and causing no small degree of itching. It looks a bit like a tiny gray lobster, and it affixes its eggs, called nits, to your hair with a glue-like saliva. Lice must be controlled for reasons both social and sanitary, and this may be accomplished through a few methods. Shaving your head, applying poisonous shampoos, or meticulous combing and nitpicking. Giardia. The waters which abound are no longer potable. You may know quite assuredly. One parasitic predator through that awaits your unfortunate stomach is Giardia, and woe to those so infected. You will likely spend your days excreting with great rapidity from either end, and your stomach will scream at you in a tongue most extraordinary and painful. Symptoms begin within a few weeks of treating, drinking untreated water and may last a few months or many years. Grapeseed extract features prominently in the herbal treatment of Giardia, but it will take a competent healer and several weeks regimen to find yourself cured. It is always best to filter your water. Appendix A. Survival Scenarios. Urban. In the scenario we described below, our protagonists have located themselves, by intention or happenstance, within the limits of a minor metropolis. This hypothetical situation could unfold with variation, perhaps anywhere in the previously civilized world, but we admit that the knowledge of the author of this document is limited primarily to the previously United States of America. Location and Defense Immediately following the final sigh of high culture, our well-prepared crew of 20 people moved to, an, moved to occupy the high school of their area. The location was chosen for many sound reasons. The school was built nearly as secure as a prison, as its previous role indicated the intentional control of large numbers of rowdy youth. The school was equipped with a library, scientific laboratories, a gymnasium, a kitchen built for feeding hundreds, and other amenities most convenient. The heating boilers were quickly adapted to run steam engines, fed with scrap that powered a great deal of the mechanical processes in the school. Upon seeing this impressive degree of infrastructure, many people chose to join them. The admittedly weak chain-link fence was reinforced by walls of packed earth tire, taken from auto shops and junkyards, which were laid like brick and anchored to the ground with rebar, gathered from construction sites. These sturdy, thick walls served as the first line of defense against ne'er-do-wells. Just behind these walls were built trebuchets and catapults, constructed from hewn wooden electrical poles. <laughs> the electrical cable itself was used in the construction of these weapons, but it also found use in the construction of zip lines that traversed from the rooftops to security posts along the perimeter walls. Unable to secure electricity to power video cameras, the clever steampunks devised elaborate optical networks of lenses and mirrors on moving tracks that allowed them to view most corners of their compound. Each individual amongst them, of every age, gender, and level of ability, trained to competency in the use of various weapons. From spears built from knives and poles, many outfitted most cleverly with shafts that could unscrew to the half of the length, to repeating crossbows built in the school's wood shop. From compound bows, both engineered locally and those scavenged from hunting supply shops, to basic slings that allowed their wielders to stand behind walls and rain rocks and chemicals upon any besieging force, the steampunks were prepared for conflict. Firearms and ammunition were also stored, and their dwindling supply of cartridges led them to design rifles to accept the black powder that they created in the school's laboratories. Cannon, constructed of iron pipe, were also mounted to the roof, but rarely employed. Utilizing the ceramic studio present within the school, present within the school, our protagonist threw pots of clay upon the potter's wheel. These were then filled with black powder, wrapped with oil-soaked wicks, lit, then catapulted into the midst of many foes. 
The scarce reserves of petrol were not utilized in the name of locomotion, bicycles having won out as a favored means of transportation, but instead were combined with styrofoam to create a form of napalm that filled glass bottles. These Molotov cocktails were lobbed by hand and by means of staff sling upon antagonists. It was well and fine that they went through such elaborate measures, because their urban location led to a great many conflicts with police, warlords, and roving gangs of scavengers. After moving into their new castle, these steampunks set out to catch any rainwater by means of the cleaning and redirecting of the gutters that line the roof. Over time, they expanded this useful labor-saving system to include the cement gutters that line the nearby streets, directing water to tanks for filtration and consumption. They also installed a series of water wheels that utilized the downward pull of gravity upon the rainwater. These water wheels were used to coil springs, the store mechanical force of which powered the saws and other equipment in the workshops of the school. Some of the water was held in a tower built atop the school, so that water pressure could be maintained in the kitchen. The bathroom plumbing, however, was shut off, and both urine and feces were utilized in the fertilization of the garden. Special care was taken with the human feces, and it was devoured and expelled by worms in a process of vermiculture before it was allowed upon the plants. For nutrition, the denizens of the high school were reliant on a diverse selection of foods. While the less informed hordes converged upon grocery stores and convenience stores, the steampunks rode bike carts out to the distributors that lined the edge of the city and the massive warehouses in the industrial district. From these places, they accumulated stores of dry goods, but these stores would not last. Behind higher walls and out of sight of the ravenous, they planted a garden that utilized the principles of permaculture to provide maximum yield with a minimum of effort. Fruit and nut trees, rescued from nurseries, grew to provide a great wealth of food. They ate the vile meat of pigeon and rat, those most effective scavengers, after attracting and trapping the poor beasts. They harvest many of the edible wilds of the city, from dandelion to clover, blackberry to prickly pear, although they knew that dangerous levels of contaminants were to be found in many, particularly along major road motorways. Survival makes many strange demands. Parking lots and minor roads were broken up to provide more room for permaculture gardens, and the asphalt was used to fill in their tire walls. Our steampunks were heavily involved in matters both military and food acquisition, and this influenced their aesthetic. Clothing was functional and hardy, much of it composed of patchwork leathers and synthetics recovered from upholstery. Armor was worn as decoration, and woven of chains of nuts and coins were common. There was much variation in style, however, and many of those who spent more of their time engaged in horticultural pursuits favored lightweight cottons with heavy belts designed to carry tools, both martial and practical. Although the expansion of both their defenses and gardens were labor-intensive practices, there was still plenty of time for recreation. Innovations were viewed as wondrous hobby, and a great many tinkerers wild the hours contracting in the shop and the laboratory. Many of the day's meals were communal affairs, and socializing occupied a great deal of the day's time. Without most recorded musical media, excepting the record, which was often played by bicycle, singing and the playing of music fell out of the hands of the few and into the hands of most everyone. Near every evening concluded with the exhibition of various musicians playing a variety of styles. Those with less, less of a taste for social endeavors wild time in the vast library whose contents had been expanded greatly by means of scavenging, and many a lamplit night was passed in the company of astounding volumes. But urban life for the post-civilized was in no way without turmoil and death, from enemies or illness, was quite common. The dead were treated in accordance with their various religions. Wilderness. Our second scenario follows a similarly small group, numbering 20 souls, 
that chose to relocate to the mountains immediately upon the collapse of polite society. This particular collection of steampunks was located in the fertile temperate zone of the United States. The advanced planning of our bold crew was to be their saving grace, as they had chosen a spot both remote and south-facing upon which to survive. As the warnings descended, they transported oil barrels full of rice, beans, medicine, and equipment up to their chosen site in the National Forest to bury. Their escape from the cities and the suburbs was immediate, having been coordinated well in advance. They drove their trucks and other vehicles up the long, winding logging roads and parked just as the cities began to cry out in desperation. The gathering of supplies for building was to be the greatest challenge to face these newly rural steampunks. So remotely located were they. But the soil itself was their greatest ally. They gathered tires from the small towns nearby and dug an abode into the hillside. Building retaining walls by packing the tires with excavated earth, they soon had a small cabin that, half buried, was nearly invisible to any who gazed upon it. The exposed edge was paned with windshield glass, and an overhang was built to maximize shade in the summer and solar heat in the winter. This passive solar heating combined with the astounding insulation provided by the eastern northern burn on three sides kept the cabin cozy in winter and summer alike. Their strategy of defense relied primarily upon their remote location. Their vehicles, stripped, were hidden well off the road, and they encouraged wilderness to reclaim their original route of entry. But they did build arms that, constructed primarily for hunting, served in the conflicts that arose. A short length of railroad rail was brought up from the mountain and used as an anvil. The springs from automobiles abandoned nearby provided an excellent steel from which to form a variety of bladed weapons, and many nails were formed into arrowheads. But the crux of their defense lay in the carefully laid traps and ambushes. Well-camouflaged treehouses were to be found all throughout their territory, each with a cachet of non-perishable food in five-gallon buckets. It was from these platforms that the steampunks did the majority of their fighting and hunting. The procurement of water was an easy task. During the strenuous first months, they relied quite heavily upon the commercial water filters and iodine tablets they had acquired in advance, but soon they had rigged a set of sand filters into an embankment. Fed by a diversion from the creek, they never liked for potable and delicious mountain water. Being a small band situated on a great deal of land, the steampunks met most of their nutritionary needs through gathering and a small amount of hunting. Acorns were collected into large burlap sacks that were tied shut and placed in swift-running brooks. And days later, the acorns were collected and ground into flour by a water well meal, mill that they had constructed. Wild greens were foraged, berries were picked and jellied, and fruits were gathered and dried. Once a week or so, a deer or elk was brought down by bowshot, and as much of the meat was smoked and salted as was eaten fresh cooked. Small gardens were constructed and cared for to supply many of the annual vegetables that the steampunks were accustomed to and were willing to work for, tomatoes, lettuce, eggplant, and the like. Though a great deal of effort was put into the gathering of food stores, the steampunks of the wild rarely felt that they might grow hungry. The interpersonal relationships between such a small and isolated group were quite challenging at times. In the beginning, a huge amount of energy was exerted on the quelling of alpha tendencies, so that no single person held power over another. Sometimes, romantic couples would break into a fierce feuding that cast a dark spell over the entire encampment for days. But when there was work to be done, most social problems dissipated quickly, and over time, everyone grew comfortable with their fellows. Near every night brought the majority together for discussion and entertainment. The day's matters were spoken of, the morrow's concerns were addressed, and one or another of the company would pick up fiddle or saw and strike up a dance. Some told stories, others told jokes. New people filtered slowly in from nearby towns, although only upon an invitation offered by the whole of the existing community. Children were born, and within a decade, their numbers had doubled. 
clothing was markedly utilitarian, and much of it was designed for camouflage and comfort. Aprons, tough gloves, pocketed belts, and hoods were still common. Many wore no shoes, even in the winter. Still, a touch of fancy was to be found in the bowlers, necklaces, pocket watch, and lace that seemed common among all genders. The boredom of isolation was their fiercest enemy, and many took up self-education to pass the mountain hours. Soon, a wonderful variety of contraptions were growing up all around, although none were intended to alleviate labor. There was a water rail refrigerator, a hand crank lathe, wooden bicycles and hand gliders. Competitions between inventors sprang up and were taken quite as seriously as one might take other sports. If you like what we've done here, please don't forget to subscribe, and please do rate and review us on iTunes. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen, you can still rate and review as long as you have an iTunes account. Your opinion really does matter. It matters more to me than you can know, and it does have an impact on how many people can find us. I do also want to gently remind you guys that I do have a Patreon, and we finally have a patron. Emmett Davenport of the Clockwork Cabaret recently signed on to become a patron, and I could not be more grateful. If you're a bandwagon jumper, now is your time. Jump on my wagon. Please remember that this is largely a one-woman show, and even for something as simple as what I'm doing, it can get expensive. I have gone ahead and set up a sale of stickers with the gear logo over at Teespring, and the link for that is in the notes. Depending on how this goes, I'll be adding more. But my ability to do that depends on you, and the library depends on you. And with that, we're done. Now, don't forget that we're doing something a little special for the fall-winter season, starting on Halloween weekend, so join us in one week, Saturday, October 28th, for part one of The Repairer of Reputations, from Robert Chambers' haunting anthology, The King in Yellow. A Steampunk's Guide to the Apocalypse was written by Margaret Kiljoy and narrated by Elizabeth Hedrick and is licensed by Ms. Kiljoy under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 3.0 Unported. You can find more information about the passions and projects of Margaret Kiljoy at birdsbeforethestorm.net. If you'd like to delve deeper into the mind of Ms. Kiljoy, you can check out her new book, The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion, which pits utopian anarchists against rogue demon deer in this drop-kick-in-the-mouth punk fantasy that Alan Moore calls scary and energetic. It's available now at Amazon.com or your chosen independent bookseller. Additional episode writing by Elizabeth Hedrick. Produced by Elizabeth Hedrick and Matt Davis. The background music in this episode was Steampunk by Bua Kanja, which can be found at freemusicarchive.org. For more information about the text and music used in today's episode, please see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Please do keep in mind that any tips, hints, how-tos, or advice given in these supplemental episodes is for entertainment only. Many of these activities could be dangerous and or illegal. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue Stocking out.